I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell. You are listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. This week on Pop It, we're on site at City Hall in Worcester with the 94th president of the Massachusetts Senate, Harriet L. Chandler. This is the room where Senator Chandler got her political start as a member of the school committee from 1991 to 1994. She has gone on to become the second woman in Massachusetts history to serve as majority leader and also the second woman in Massachusetts history to serve as the Senate president. At age 81, she has never lost an election. Welcome. That's Thank amazing. you. That's quite an introduction. What a statistic. I know. It's amazing. Well, I remember there was an article by the Globe. It was a headline, and it said that you had never lost an election and that you were basically the most educated woman in the state house. I think that's pushing it a bit, but I guess it's... It sounds right to me. Was I accurate about this being the very location where you started on very school location committee? location, and uh, actually uh, our city manager... Ed Augustus sat here with me in that first term. He was just a baby, right? He was a baby, and <laughs> I wasn't a baby. Uh, but it was fun, and that was the first time our our lives sort of connected, and then he served in the state senate with me, so second time. What were the issues at hand on the school committee at that time? Are they Were they, like, drastically different? Were they no, similar in some ways? they're very similar. Right. It's always the issue of funding, and yeah. there's the issue of... Uh, uh, what to do with children who have problems in school. And if I remember correctly, one of the foremost issues was the issue of sex education in the Worcester schools. So nothing has, yeah. nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Three repeats itself, I guess. Now, I was in your office the day that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement, and you said, this means that RBG is going to have to stay on forever. She's my role model. Can you tell me about your connection to RBG? Sure, I'd love to. Our, our RBG was in my husband's law school class, and she's just enough older than I am so that you know I would look up to her. There were seven women in that class, and not any of them were able to get a, a job in a law firm. I always had wanted to be a lawyer, and my husband was just graduating law school at the time, and he said, and correctly so, you're never going to get a job, and it's going to kill you to have to go through this and not be able to get a, a good job or a job at all. And, um, and so I never went to law school, and I've always kind of regretted it. And I always looked to her as a model because maybe she didn't get a job in a law firm, but she made a job for herself and she changed the course of women's history, really. I know that you are not ashamed to say that you started as a Republican. I am not ashamed to. If I remember correctly, you became a Democrat when the Republicans took a hard right turn in regards to women's bodies. Sarah, you got it. How have you fought for women who feel like they do not have a voice? I guess I started, I've done a lot of women's legislation without purposefully doing it. I, it, you know, I, I'm very pragmatic and things that need to be done, I try to take care of and do. My first big piece of legislation was the uh, 48-hour delivery because women back then in 1995, 96, uh, could stay in a hospital for one midnight after giving birth, which seems inhuman. I mean, it seemed inhuman then, but people just you know, it was fine to stay one midnight. 
uh, if they had the baby at 11 o'clock at night, then they could stay that midnight and they, they were out the next morning. And so that was my first bill, big bill, to get, give women the right to stay in a hospital for more than, you know, a 24-hour kind of term, give them at least two days. People would try to wait, right, like to have the baby until after midnight, right, so then they could get right, that, right. which is so crazy because it's like you can't control your body. And, you know, we weren't very differently different than the Chinese peasant women who were having babies in the field and had to get up and go to work the next day. Um, we were doing almost the same thing. But we, of course, thought that was very civilized at the time. So that was my first big bill. Um, and there have been lots of bills since then, lots and lots of bills. And uh, in the last two or three years, we've done even more. We've done an access bill to give women, uh, particularly young women who want access to contraceptives, we want to give them the opportunity to have contraceptives, not just one kind of contraceptives fits all because it doesn't work that way. Uh, but we wanted to give them the, ac the opportunity to have access to whatever they needed, whatever worked between, according to them and their doctor, and uh, to be able to get a 12-month supply. Because to have to go back to, to a, a drugstore every few weeks to get another supply makes no sense either. So that was the second one. Oh, even before that, we did a buffer zone bill uh, because people were doing crazy things in it, it, abutting a, 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 a place where very cruel things, very cruel. They were people entering a, a, a an abortion clinic. A healthcare facility. Which is a healthcare yeah. facility. And how do they know whether it's healthcare that they're getting or whether they may be getting an abortion? Uh, and we see that here. We see on days that abortions are done. We see uh, a demonstration that goes on and has been going on for years and years. But we wanted to make sure that people who were going entering a, um, a, a planned parenthood clinic or any clinic where they could get their health care, that they would not be harassed. And that's exactly right what the word was, harassed. They were all over the car. They were all over them. Um, and if you notice, now newer planned parenthood clinics are being built with a little protection so that women are not protected. Anyway, with that, with that bill what we did was establish a buffer zone. Yep. And um, the Supreme, that, court, that case went to the Supreme Court seven years later or six years later. And it's interesting to have a case, a bill that you've done be turned down by the U.S. Supreme Court, but it was turned down and we quickly looked at it to see what was the decision, how could we change it to make, to give some protections. And we did. And we just, changed the outlines of that buffer zone so that it met the criteria that the Supreme Court uh, suggested in their, in, in, that, uh, in their decision. I could see that you had a close friendship to or a nice relationship with counsel to the Senate, Jennifer Miller. I did. And she argued in 2014, right? She did. For that bill in particular. Boy, you're a good journalist. I am impressed. You've done your homework. But I wanted to know about that friendship with her or the relationship that you have, because I, when I was sitting... She's not there anymore. She's not. Oh, gosh. She, she's gone. She has gone to be the chief of staff to, to District Attorney Rollins, who is the district attorney, the new district attorney in Suffolk. And it's an exciting job for her. It's a great place for her to be. It's a it basically... It, 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 it takes her out of her comfort zone. 
And we all need to be taken out of our comfort zone. That election was like revolutionary wasn't it? in a way. Absolutely. I remember watching that. I used to like live out there. And really? so and so, yeah, that was very exciting to me, especially in Boston, even recently, just like the uptick in the, the women city councilors, too. They got a lot of them in one yeah. fell swoop and they were women of color, which is right. amazing. Right. All of a sudden it was like a, a third of the council. Yeah. yeah, that was incredible. So this is a really wonderful opportunity for Jennifer Miller. And I, we will miss her. We don't have a new appointment yet for Senate Council, but I hope that whoever it is is of the same caliber as Jennifer Miller because she's a hard act to follow otherwise. Big shoes to fill. Oh, very big shoes. Very big shoes. Now, I think I interrupted you as you're about to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing lately for women. Well, more recently, we've been dealing with, uh, we've all become very concerned uh, about Roe v. Wade. With the election of Trump in 2016, it, he made no bones about where he stood on Roe v. Wade and where his base stood on Roe v. Wade. And since he always speaks to his base and tries to live up to his campaign promises to his base, uh, we became very concerned. And that only magnified when he nominated Kavanaugh to the, to the Supreme Court because Kavanaugh was pretty clear about where he stood on that issue. And, you know, we've all had legislation in the past in Massachusetts that we, we, we've not, we have legislation on the books. We have legislation that's not on the books. We felt we were taken care of and protected by Roe v. Wade. And if Roe v. Wade, for one reason or another, were to go down, the question is, we'd be out there with no protection. And so we've become very concerned about how to protect ourselves, since I think you will see, and it's already begun in the last two years, nothing much is happening at the federal level. And most of the legislation, certainly the legislation, the, the controversial legislation that deals with women, is happening at the state level. And, uh, and, and there are other issues that are happening at the state level. Climate change is beginning to happen at the state level. Things that we know we need protections and Roe v. Wade is one of those protections that women need in terms of reproductive rights. And so we have done a bill this year called the Roe Act. And the Roe Act basically uh, states what we as people who live in Massachusetts feel about the issue of abortion. Um, and I know, like, constitutionally, when Roe v. Wade was when the whole when it went down basically what they said was that it was Roe v. Wade is still here right but, or when it's I'm sorry when it went down like when all the when it happened originally yes, when it in happened. the 70s or, yes right. good clarification yes yeah. that was a little slang it was a little <laughs> colloquialism basically it was brought to the fact that abortion was protected by the right to privacy right. in the because of the due process clause of the 14th amendment but then they compromised with the states or with the opponents by saying, okay, so like states' rights dictate third trimester, basically. Um, And so it's interesting because you mentioned that at a federal level for a very long time, nothing has quite happened. Why has has Massachusetts taken so long to finally say, how can we, like what has... Molly, we've been lulled into a false sense of security. You know, we think we're all set. Yeah. This, and, and this is Massachusetts. Right. This is blue, wonderful Massachusetts. We're in our own little bubble here where right. we think everything's protected. Women don't have to worry about yeah. those things. 
Well, that's not so true. Right. And we're very aware of that now because now we see what could happen if Roe v. Wade went down and there we'd be with no protections. Right. And the third trimester is a critical trimester. And that's the one this bill is particularly concerned about because that's the one that, um, that, that problems in pregnancy that have not shown themselves previously begin to show up. There's a term for it. It's called fatal fetal anomalies. Uh, that's all the horrible, terrible, rare things that can go wrong. That's when it happens. And at that point in time, it's the life of the mother is at stake. The, 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 the fetus is probably at stake as well. Not probably. The fetus is at stake as well. The uh, ability to be viable for the fetus is at stake. Not all pregnancies are viable. Not all pregnancies are viable. And, you know, what do you do about that? What do you do? And it's also, do you force a person to give birth to a fetus that is not viable? And what kind of um, what kind of effect does that have on the mental health of a woman or a person who's forced to give birth? Or the mother's life may be at stake right. here too. Yeah. I mean, there's there there are a couple of things that are there's there are many things that can go wrong, and so in terms of the fact that we believe that reproductive health is women's health as well, uh, we have to think about that. Right. And the fact that decisions to have an abortion or, um, you know, decisions based around pregnancy should really be between the person and their doctor. You said it better than I could ever say it. You're absolutely right. But I think that what you pointed out before is like we live in this bubble in Massachusetts where we think that that's, that's just how it is. But it's scary to think that we need to now offer this extra protection. And I think that's the best way of saying it. We really are offering an extra protection. I call it in my mind because sometimes I get all tangled up in the fatal fetal anomalies. I call it the FFAs. Uh, but quite frankly, that's a really a great danger. And it's, it's a great danger to the mother's health, both physical and mental. Yeah. And people have to understand that no one looks at an abortion, particularly in the third trimester, as a method of contraception. Right. I mean, who in their right mind would be, would be having a, an abortion in their third trimester as a method of just not having a baby? That's, that, they want a baby. Unless it was like an emergency. It is an emergency, right. and it's a tragic emergency, and it, it could mean any one of a number of problems that that they're quite horrible. And right now, as things stand, as the law is written, the, we're not allowed to do that. Doctors are not allowed to do that. That's a part of the tool chest, if you will, the toolkit that a doctor has that he can't use. And so what happens at that point? And what happens now is that the person, the mother, would have to go elsewhere. Here we are in Massachusetts, right. the, the, the health center of the of the world, as far as most of us are concerned, and the mother would have to go elsewhere to have this take place. It's expensive. It takes time at a, at a tip, particularly difficult point in a pregnancy. Um, and it's just wrong, just yeah. totally wrong. So the row part, part of the title is remove obstacles and expand. expand. And That's, so you got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so part of that, too, is 
removing an obstacle for like a teen, right? And taking away the requirement for a minor um, to get approval from a judge or a parent, because that is also something that then young people go out of state or they go elsewhere. So that's removing that obstacle, right? If they can't, because not all 16 year olds can go to a parent and say. I'm glad you're saying that because, and you're a teacher too, so you understand that. And I was a teacher at one point, but not all parents and and teenagers. I I mean, it's it's the exception rather than the rule, but it happens. And so we, the people who framed this bill originally, this law originally, said, well, we have to have a bypass for it. We have to have something in its place. So they picked up this judicial review so that they would go to a judge. Well, think about it. You are not 16 years old, but would you know how to begin that process of finding a judge, of going? I mean, it's it's almost impossible to do. To defend your right to make a choice about your body, basically. With a, a choice about a body with problems, problems attached to it, all kinds of problems. And time is critical in a pregnancy. And to make them wait to get it, to find a judge, to figure out how to get to a judge, find the judge, and then have it, you know, have a decision made. That takes time. It takes money. Young people don't have, they don't have the money, certainly. Uh, And it, it's it, it's a very difficult procedure, and they've looked at this empirically now in terms of the people who've gone to a judge before a judge, and they have found that in almost every case, in almost every case, and there have been really a lot of cases at this point, in almost every case, the judge has found with for with with the the, the teen that they should have the abortion. Well, that's refreshing. I mean, oh, it's yeah. it's refreshing in that it means that. For one reason or another, they have found that this is not the right decision for this for this reproductive decision for this particular ch- person. I, I, I mean to say child because right. it really is a child. But they that's the one tool that the child does not have at this point because they've gotten pregnant, right? They're, if they have the baby, they're going to go through childbirth. Nobody else is going to do it for them. And then they have the responsibility of raising the child. The one thing they don't have is the the ability to have an abortion. And that's the tool we're trying to put back into the doctor's toolkit and the, 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 the mother's toolkit. Right. Because this also, this also looks at giving those opportunities back to medical providers too. Shouldn't they're trained to do that. Right. And, you know, they have a board that they have to answer to ethically. Uh, they have to show that there is a problem. There is a reason that would give them cause to do this. So it's, it's not as though you're giving them a free reign here to do whatever they see fit. You are giving them the reign to, to do whatever they see, see fit medically. But, you know, you ha- that's why we have doctors. We have to trust their judgment. And patients have to ju- trust their judgment as well. Now, you mentioned that you were a teacher. I also recall that you were a swim instructor I was, and a food and writer. So were you. And I said, oh my God, we're kindred spirits. Yes, have a we lot are. in common. And a book reviewer, too. And you were- <laughs> That's wild. So, can you just um, give some advice to young women right now? You've worn a lot of hats. How can they make their way into politics? Oh, 
if they're even thinking about it, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Um, I had no role models. There were very few women when I started. Uh, for a while, there were no bathrooms for women in the state house. I mean, just think about that for a moment. It was a old white men kind of place. And uh, I had no reason to think that I had any, and I wasn't brought up to believe that a woman could do things like that. I just wasn't brought up that way. And I had no reason to think that I could. And I just decided one day, and it happened because I saw that Worcester was having some issues with getting people to come and live in Worcester because the schools were supposed to be so bad that people didn't want to buy homes in Worcester. And I thought, gee, what is the one thing that I probably could give? Because it was my turn to give back, I felt. My mother had just died, and I had just, you know, you start thinking about your own mortality. And I thought to myself, what can I do to give back? Because I've, been, I've re really had a lucky life. And I thought, gee, I could do something with the schools because that's what I know. That's what I know best. And I ran for the school committee. And I really believed that there wasn't a seat open at the time. I didn't even care. I was going to just get on that school committee and make a difference. And that's how it began. You have to believe in yourself. And you have to believe that a, women, that a woman can make a difference in the schools. Um, and I think they can. Um, one of the other issues besides sex education, I was the only woman on the school committee all the time that I was on, all the time, all three years that I was on the school committee. And uh, I, it, it, there's a different, we, ha we bring in something different to the table. Women seem to think that they need to have a huge bankroll, a huge group of friends. Uh, I don't know, they have to maybe get another degree. That's always something people think about. That's not true. Men don't think that way. Men think they're born to do that. that you know, it's just something that they should, that's, that's theirs to be taken. We have to start thinking a little bit more like that. We have to, these smart, ambitious young women, you just don't talk about it all the time and talk about it and talk about it. You got to do it. And so I encourage young women. I make it a point now of encouraging young women to run for office because why not? Why not? Uh, there is so much that we add to the table. When we come to the table, we add so much. And when we use our voices effectively, we add even more. So when I was in college, I took a leadership course and John Walsh came to speak to our class. Yeah, who was the um, chair of the state Democratic Party at the time. And he said, um, you know, men just run for office, like you said, and that on average, women need to be asked five times to run for office before they will. And so he said, I'm here to be one of those times to oh, ask you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was so really cool. So what are you cool. going to run, Molly? Exactly, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was, it was really cool. He said, this might be the first time someone asks you, but like to the, just to the class. And, you know, there were men in the class too, but he was just like very pointedly said, I'm here to ask you to run right. for office. Good and for I him. thought, right, and so now here's another one. Well, right, I, 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 would, I, would, I would go a step further. You don't have to be asked. Right. If you want to run for something, don't wait to be asked. Men don't wait to be asked. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that women in the legislature happen to be hard, the harder workers. Yeah. Uh, we, we come to this a lot later than men because uh, we have biological issues. If we have children, we have, I mean, there's on and on and on. Right. And we're seeing a younger group of women now. 
And that's, that's wonderful. And we're seeing women who have strong opinions about something. That's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, a, new, it's a new era. And we've really got to see that have a chance to bloom. And you're both part of that new era, so I, I hope you will take this as a, a hint, and, and or as an ask, whatever you want to. So I'll be your second. If 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 John Walsh was your first, I'll be your second. And uh, think about it. You can make a difference. Well, last year you stepped up in a whole new way. I guess it was probably December of 2017. Uh, there was the sexual harassment allegations against the Senate president, Stanley Rosenberg's husband. And that was when that Globe headline, it read, the acting Senate president has a PhD, an MBA, and won 24 straight elections. Uh, but you found yourself in a brand new office with a brand new set of obligations. What drove you to the decision to step up? Um, I thought of, I, I never had any any dream even of being the Senate pre- I come from an era where women don't think that way. We don't think that this is possible for us. That's why I guess I'm making such a point of saying it is possible. And look at me, if that's what my term of office has done, it, 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 you're, you're capable of doing it. Um, I, I knew I was capable of it, but it never occurred to me and my, my fellow my fellow senators turned to me because I was the majority leader. I had served in every office in the, of leadership that we had in the Senate, and they asked me to, to take the job. Um, at 81, I was going to be 80 at that time, but you, you don't think of this as a long-term engagement. And you really think in terms of, I can do this. This will be resolved very shortly, and I can do it for a short time. And um, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whenever there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, I always feel I can do it. If there is something that goes on and on and on, I may not have that quite the same thing, uh, may not feel quite the same way about it. But I knew I had the trust of my, my, my colleagues. Uh, they were very helpful because we had to be helpful. We knew that the, 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 the integrity of the Senate was at stake. That's really what it was all about. It was the integrity of the Senate. And we had to do as much as we could before the term ended so that we would get our legislation through so that we wouldn't be absolutely swamped by the House or be in worse still, not able to accomplish anything because we were in such disarray. And what I was able to do was to bring the, the firm skills of a teacher to, you know, if you start misbehaving, we're going to have to take action here. You know what that's like. And uh, I brought that and I brought just years of, I had been in the legislature at that point, 23 years. And so, I, I mean, I know the legislature pretty well. And what it did was to call on my, my, all of my experience and my ability to help to get people to work together. That's very important in this whole thing. Women tend to do that very well, by the way. There's not as much ego in that and, uh, as there are, is probably for men. And we are used to juggling a lot of balls and listening and mediating. I'm a trained mediator as well, so I you know, brought all that together, and that's how I did it. There's a great photo of um, when a bill was being signed, uh, Governor Baker kind of like gazing up at you. And I, I love that picture because it's just like, but it's just like you said, like people work, bringing people together, 
who are have different opinions or who see things differently. And I thought that that was just a great illustration of like his admiration for you. You're very kind. He we did a wonderful bill last year, yeah. the civics bill, and I made it a point of bringing Republicans and Democrats together on this bill, bringing House members and Senate members and bringing this whole coterie of people involved in the education system because we're asking for a new course to be put in place, a very important course, but a new course. And um, his, his administration wasn't terribly excited about it at first because they had all kinds of concerns about it, which we answered one by one by one. It's going to make a huge difference to the future of our, of, of our leadership of the state, we think. So um, that's very kind of you to say that. I, I, I guess I don't look at that quite the same way. I, I'm just trying to get move things on, get right. things done, and you know, the way a teacher does. Right. You know, got to get to the next assignment. Got to get moving on. Well, the outside looking in is totally different. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I just thought that was a cool perspective. I was lucky enough to be there the day that he signed the grand bargain bill. That and was you told big. me, you said, that was big. if you don't care who gets the credit, you can get a lot done. I always believe that. And it's very true. If you don't care who gets the credit, you can get so much done. And it, I go out of my way, in fact, to make sure that we have lots of people involved. Because if people have what you might say, skin in the game, they, they have something to, to, to lose. They have something to gain, and they're going to help. And so it's important to get that to, to happen. But, you know, teachers do that too. Uh, it's true. Make them think it's their idea, and yeah. the class will be all in. And that's, and that's what you want. That's exactly what you want. There's a line in Hamilton that... I have not seen that yet. You're very lucky. <laughs> I've seen it twice. Ooh. I know. She's a lucky gal. Um, the hip hop musical about Alexander Hamilton, um, there's a song called The Room Where It Happens. And it's about Aaron Burr basically saying that he wants to be in the room where it happens because he's on the outside looking in at Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington getting all of this stuff done. Um, and one of the lines that he says is, when you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. But you don't win unless you play in the game. And I love that. So true. And that's why it's so important for women to get involved and people of color to get involved and not think about it and think about it and think you can, you can get things accomplished from outside. It's a terribly, terribly large amount of effort that is required to move people from outside. But if you're inside and at the table, you can have very subtle influences and make things happen. And I think it goes with what you said, though, which is like, Everyone, everyone does have a stake in political decision making. And a lot of people don't realize that because they say, oh, you know, I vote, but does, does it matter or this or that? But like everyone has skin in the game because every decision made affects society, basically. You said it very well. I couldn't say it better myself. Vote for Molly. <laughs> uh, Molly, you're on your on your way. Yeah, I I majored in political communication. Did you really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and actually, after I graduated, I briefly worked for Jay Livingstone. Oh, I know Jay. Has co-sponsored the House version of the bill, which I found very exciting. So I was very proud of him. I saw that, and I was like, oh. With um, Rep Haddad, right? right? With Patricia Haddad, yeah. So I just thought that was really exciting because that was my first real job after I graduated from college. Oh, that's marvelous. Yeah. 
So I just thought that that was really cool too. I know you've undergone a, a lot of transitions over the last year. Like we said last year at this time, you were the most powerful woman in the state house, and now there's been a shift in power. Uh, how are you handling that? Is it something that you kind of enjoy letting the reins out? Or? Well, I'll tell you, quite honestly, I don't take blood pressure medication anymore. I don't need it. It's like taking a, a weight off your shoulders. Um, it was fun and exciting. I must say that about being president. But, you know, I came to the legislature to do legislation and to improve my my district, to give the district and the people I represent, which is the Commonwealth. We've we've moved from whatever I do for the, for the people of Worcester in my district affects the Commonwealth as a whole. I love doing that. Um, it would have been easy to, to leave. But, you know, take what you just said about the Hamilton song and turn it around. If you're not at the table, you don't have, I'm, I'm still a member of leadership in the Senate. You don't have a say if you're not at the table. If you're not a member of leadership, you don't have that say. And people who get angry and, and just resign because they're, they, they don't want to deal with this anymore, I don't think they've gained anything. I think what they've done is lost their voice, and they've lost their voice and their ability to, to make change happen. And, you know, we've got to keep making change happen. We've got to do this, and we've got to very definitely. I think, you know, your comment about people say, does my vote count? That might have been true in 2000, before 2016. But I think now that we have seen what a vote can, how a vote can matter, three million votes, that sounds like a lot, but in a country of our size, three million votes, you know, is nothing. Uh, every vote counts. And if you don't vote, look what can happen. Just look what can happen. Amid that transition of power, there was a different Globe article that made my blood boil. And it had this line. It said, men might have settled this transition between you and President Spilka with a heart-to-heart -heart stroll around the Hooker statue. Instead, Chandler and Spilka are fighting over timing of a baton pass, like bargain hunters battling over a markdown at Filene's basement. It made my my blood boiled too, because that isn't really what happened at all. So what really happened? What really happened was that we had some disagreement about when and how it was going to happen. Uh, we finally worked it out and, uh, and, and the transition was completed. So, you know, it was as simple as that. But wouldn't, wouldn't it be expected that if, if two men were involved, they wouldn't make any comments? But women, and they've never had an experience with two women before. This is the first time in history that a woman has ever turned over power to another woman in, in, in the legislature. I mean, the House still hasn't had a woman as speaker. So we've come a long way in some cases, but we really have it in terms of the press still thinks in very traditional terms. And it's kind of a nasty comment to make. And, but you go on to the next issue because tomorrow there'll be another issue. Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com.
Uh, Molly, if you don't have any further questions, I have some would you rather. That's what but. I figured. I was going to say, is it would you rather time? So we just have <laughs> yeah, a little game to play. I have three questions for you. Okay. Uh, we'll answer two, but it says, would you rather throw the first pitch at a Red Sox game or star in an opera like your friend RBG? <laughs> oh, um, well, I've, I've thrown first pitches, not at the Red Sox game, but I have thrown first pitches and that's fun. Uh, I mean, she loves opera. I know. And that's what's so exciting. She does, she she sort of leads with what she's good at and what she likes to do. And, you know, that's such a, a, a wonderful feminine kind of, of feeling. And, and she probably goes to Red Sox games too. Why can't a woman do both? That's right. Yeah, good question. <laughs> what would you choose, Molly? I would... Can I make it a mu- like a musical instead of the sure. opera? Because that's what I would do. You like musicals, I right? I do. She loves I love musicals. the theater, yeah. Yes. I do too. Yeah. I think I would throw the pitch, although I'd have to practice first. Yep. I think Ed Augustus is going to have to practice too because yeah. that big stadium's a coming. Oh, that's good. He will be so happy to be able to do that. I bet. I waited a long time. It might, it might be a little high though, the throw, right? <laughs> well, because he's like six he's foot so seven. Tall, yeah. <laughs> It might be a ball. It might be a high, high ball. Okay, I think I know the answer to this one. Would you rather go to the movies with Minority Leader Bruce Tarr or Majority Leader Cynthia Stone Cream? Well, I, I want you to know that both of them are friends of mine, but I have a particularly close relationship with Bruce Tarr. We worked together as partners in last year, and without the help of Bruce Tarr as the Minority Leader and the Republicans, who voted with me in every single major vote we had we couldn't we would not have done as well in getting through the year i would just like to say that bruce tar's district has some of the best beaches in the state <laughs> i would like to you, add you that. like gloucester yes yes yeah okay <laughs> yes your aide zoe over there um to break the fourth wall a little bit but she is such a fan of the beach and she's yeah. shown us so many beautiful beaches yeah. in that area oh, really? beautiful beaches mm-hmm. definitely well he is taking the senate to his district, in the, we said in the summer, not in the winter. We'd like to see it in the summer and good food there too. And oh, lovely. Woodmans of Essex. <laughs> he is he is so into this district of his, that, but he's, he's a wonderful person. Okay, my last question. Would you rather see a statue erected in Worcester of abolitionist and suffragette Abby Kelly Foster or reformer and activist Dorothea Dix? Oh, that's asking you which of your first two children, which of your children you like the best. Um, I, I think we'd like to have a statue in honor of the 100th year, 100 years of women's suffrage. It, it looks like it's probably going to be Abby Kelly Foster, but both of them come from Worcester. We should be proud of both of them. They've both done their own things and they've done them so well. Dorothy had care of the mentally ill. Met, oh, she her, did wonderful yeah. things with for social welfare. And that was pretty incredible as well. They, so, you know, and we, there are lots of other women we can name and we're going to have to think about how to do that so that we in Worcester know our own history well. Um, I do have one more question because, so on this podcast, we talk a lot about local culture and professional culture, but we also talk about pop culture. And I have heard that you, like me, are a big fan of the award shows. And the Oscars. Do you like that too? Oh, yes. My mom and I are very into it. Um, so I heard that you watched the whole ceremony the, whole, the other night. The whole thing. What was, your, what was the highlight for you? What really stood out? 
I was very concerned about John Lewis. I, 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 that bothered me. Yeah. That, yeah, that bothered me because um, I just, I, I, he's such a remarkable man. Yeah. He's an iconic figure. Oh, right. um, and I think he got a standing ovation. He, oh, of course, and he should have. Yeah. Uh, you know, two years ago, we were complaining that there were not enough people. There were no people of color who were really part of it. Right. And this year, there were lots of people of color and lots of winners yes. who were also. Yeah. I guess I guess I'm bothered by the the fact that Green Book won because it, yeah. you too? Yes. Uh, because <laughs> it's probably the same reason. It's driving Miss Daisy. It is driving Miss Daisy again. And it beats Spike again. It beats Spike Lee. Well, for picture. It beats Spike Lee. So in, and I've talked about this, actually, I talked about this exact episode on the podcast a few weeks ago um, where I discussed how in 1989, um, Spike Lee was not nominated. He was nominated for Best Screenplay, but he did not get nominated for Best Picture or Best Director for Do the Right Thing. And that was the same year that Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. And even back to the same thing, aren't we? Right. And even at the time, people said this is a little bit uh, of a dated look at race relations. Um, Right. And it does feel it feels very similar to that. But I was excited to see him win for Best Original Screenplay. Um, and then all the winners, like you mentioned, um, the speech given by um, the the production designer of Black Panther. Black Panther. She was incredible. Her name was Hannah Beachler. Yes. And her speech was about her mother. It was she talked she talked about her family, but she talked a lot about Ryan Coogler, who was the director of Black Panther and his true like mentorship and his true like um, we say a lot on here arising. What is it? <laughs> a rising, rising tide, tide raises, raises all ships. Yes. And she she talked a lot about like the true relationships that she's built with mentor type people in her life. And I, I thought that speech was really moving as well. But um, yeah, I thought there was a lot to be excited about this year. And, you know, without a host, I think they did better. It was it was tight. Oh, yeah. It moved along beautifully. It wasn't a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted words, which right. sometimes it is. Yes. And I thought. I mean, they always have the presenters do little bits, and those those were good enough. That's all we needed. That's, but you didn't need a, a thir- another layer in there nope. because it just takes up time. And Yep. Yeah, I thought it was great. Well, I'll say I'm a little bit of a pop culture neophyte compared to my friend Molly over here, but one of your staffers, Allie, she writes a weekly newsletter to keep everybody... Isn't, isn't she wonderful? She's got such strong yeah. writer's voice. It's so funny and snappy, and she she can write with brevity, too, where she says so much in so few words. I would yeah, love to... I, I keep telling her I'd love to find her get a job doing doing this as a f- full time because she is good she is and i've just been introduced to it in the last couple of weeks i didn't even know what happened uh, and and she sort of sheepishly showed me what you know her blog and my goodness i look forward I thought it was to a professional. it oh you're on it too oh yeah yeah I me do. too <laughs> every week i look forward to it coming out yeah i get it like and i forget too and then on friday i'm like oh I also cool. thought it was a professional too. Zoe had kindly put me on the list and I started to get it. And I said, Molly, I just yeah. love this new list I'm on. I get it every week. And she said, that's Allie. That's Allie. Yeah. From Senator Chandler's office. She's good. She's smart and she really is very to the point. And that's what, you know, that's what you have to have in that kind of a blog. Well, thank you so much yes, for joining us today. Wonderful. You are an inspiration to so many women in this community and we can't thank you enough. 
I, I, I don't do it for that reason, trust me. But I would love to see more women get involved. Absolutely. So I hope that you sort of listen to me carefully and get involved. And Molly, if you want to run for office, don't just talk about it and think about it. Do it. Do Sounds it, good. Molly. <laughs> I will take that to heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I have been Molly. And I have been Sarah. And this has been Pop It. Thank you. <laughs> Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com.